again, uh, and uh, everything going pretty well, I guess. I don't have much to announce other than maybe to mention that uh, maybe you're watching the situation between Iran and the USA and the Middle East, and that thing is uh, growing very, very incendiary over there. Uh, with this with this attack, uh, what a couple of days ago on two more oil freighters, one of which may have sunk and the other almost is, and they're spreading oil all over the area there near the Strait of Hormuz. And the U.S. government has definitely blamed it on Iran, and says that we're taking it very seriously. <clears throat> the report this morning was that that Iran had also fired at a drone that we had there that was. Uh, monitoring the situation and watching the Iranian patrol boats coming near the two ships that did get hit. Uh, so they shot at our drone and missed it with a missile. And uh, that, they're saying, was Iran. Uh, Britain is backing it up. Uh, who knows who actually did it? I mean, I've, I've grown skeptical over the years. Was it really Iran or was it the CIA and blaming it on Iran? It's, <laughs> it's just hard to say in these things. But so far, everybody's saying that Iran was actually behind it. And, uh, of course, I'm always watching that situation because Daniel 8, if I read it and interpret it right, seems to be indicating that we will attack Iran uh, and break their horn before we get our horn broken. So, of course, you have the allies of Iran on one side, Russia and China and, and all those. But as far as the economic portent is concerned, if the state of, Strait of Hormuz is, clo Hermuz is closed uh, due to war or shipping sinks or mines in there or whatever, uh, that cuts off 30% of the oil that goes to the whole world. And that would be a very critical issue in terms of everybody's economies going on as they are. It would probably raise the price of oil and gas astronomically as well. Uh, and how many more blows can the world's economy take before this crash occurs? So, I mean, it's just, there are so many, many things like that. And the American as well with all the tremendous flooding and uh, the Middle West, where most of the corn and soy and much of what we produce uh, cannot even be planted this year because of so much mud and rain and so on, they can't even get in the fields to plant. And where they have planted, the water has come in and it's been so much water that the crops, instead of being green or yellow, they're not healthy. And uh, on top of that, then, will probably be, <laughs> who knows, Maybe it won't rain again the rest of the summer, uh, which makes it even harder to produce crops on top of that. I mean, even with all the rains and the incredible snowpack they've had in the Sierra Nevadas this year in California, uh, now it's not raining, and all of that grass and brush and everything that grew as a result of the rain will shortly turn uh, brown and dry. And they're expecting an incredible fire season again this year because there's so much growth that has occurred from the rains themselves. So it's frying pan to fire and so on everywhere you look. So I don't think we're too far off in saying that this thing is getting very, very near. And in some respects, I have to think that it's already started. I hearken back, as I said recently, to... Uh, when the sun was dark over the middle of the nation at noon two years ago, that things have gotten worse and worse from them. It isn't that everything has to happen on one day. Uh, once the process is started, it just gets worse and worse and worse until finally everything just totally collapses. So I think we're already seeing these end-time events. As he said there in Matthew 24, which we read last week or the week before, whenever it was, uh, you'll see an increase in earthquakes and in wars and rumors of wars. And that has been increasing exponentially over the last couple of years. 
So I think we're there. It's just a matter of when it gets as bad as we might have imagined uh, and as bad as the Scriptures say it will ultimately turn. So we're, we're good to be where we are. Uh, there was a, an incident just yesterday where a little four-year-old girl picked up something in a store and carried it out with her. It was a one-dollar item or something like that. But the family, it was a black family, were accosted by the police, and the police told the father they were going to shoot him dead because his daughter had picked up a one-dollar item at age four and carried it out of the store. Well, things are getting tenser and tenser all the time. And we're, we're truly sitting on a powder keg. What would it take to set everything off? So, uh, we're in it. We just don't know how far yet. Anyway, let's go to Second Corinthians 9. We've been reading here how uh, Paul was admonishing them to help people who were in need financially or mainly for food and uh, has been preparing their attitudes, uh, talking about readiness of mind and willingness and being uh, forward or willing to proceed. And he spends quite a little time here about that kind of attitude and approach that we ought to have. And I left off in chapter 9 last week at the end of verse 7 where he makes a statement uh, at the end of that verse for God loves a cheerful giver. So it's one thing to give grudgingly. It's quite another thing to be of a ready mind and a willing heart to give for the help of other people, which is what this is really all about. And it has more to do not with just whether the food got to those in need but whether those who were supplying their need were happy to do so, willing, ready, and able to do anything they could to help their brethren in another area. So, we're not reading this just as something where Paul is filling this in and asking him to do something that needs done, but he is taking a lot of time, a lot of space in this letter to prepare their hearts and minds. And isn't that what we're all about? Is preparing our hearts and minds for whatever is to come, uh, whatever is ahead of us to supply whatever need is there as it comes. And we know that there is a great need coming soon. Uh, the world will be starving to death. Uh, there will be famines and pestilences terrible diseases, and many hundreds of millions and even billions are going to ultimately die. But God has said He is going to round up some and bring them, and they're going to come having needs. And it's, again, a microcosm of the millennium. When Christ does come to set up His kingdom on this earth... There will be, according to Scripture, I believe, about 100 million left out of 7 billion. That's all. And they will be in a very needy condition. They will have just survived the tribulation, the seven last plagues, and those apparently will be cut short lest nobody survive. So they're going to be without food, they're going to be without shelter, without clothing, they're going to have been beat up terribly psychologically uh, with want and need and fear of being killed and everything coming apart on them. So they're going to be as needy as people can be, both physically and mentally and emotionally needy. Uh, I mean... Some little tragedy happens somewhere in a town across the country or in, in the world, uh, like at a school shooting where two or three people or nine get killed, and they have all kinds of things set up to counsel them, a psychologist from here and there, and they encourage them to get help. 
And that's from one little, by comparison, very small thing. That all those needs are there because it just tears people up. And then often those, are, those events are followed by suicides with some of the children who can't handle it. And what's it going to be like when all of this worldwide destruction has come and those who were promising them peace hereafter as the beast and the false prophet, you know, uh, here you can buy and you can sell and we'll take care of you. And then God turns it around and the beast and the false prophet are picked up by the nap of the neck and thrown in the lake of fire or in, in a fire at least at that point, and uh, not the lake of fire, because that comes later. But uh, here their leaders are suddenly killed, and now what do they do? And the seven last plagues come upon them. Uh, you talk about a world in psychological crisis. Those people are going to be looking for answers. So when we read this, we need to be thinking ahead, not of people back then who needed some food, but thinking ahead of what this world is going to need and how we are in a position to be the greatest help that they could possibly have. There will be no Red Cross. There will be no United Nations. There will be no help from anywhere except Christ and His Bride. That's the only place they can get any help whatsoever. Because everything else will have been destroyed. So they're going to be standing there saying, What do we do? And you and I are going to be there with a ready and willing mind to work with Christ to solve all their problems. To bring them finally true peace uh, with everything they need and with a world that has not gone crazy. A world that finally knows peace. All the promises of peace made by man are going to come to nothing. And only after they are softened and demoralized and all, all but destroyed, those who survive will have come within a horse's hair of dying. That's how close it will be. And a needier people has never been than those that will be then. So we have to be prepared. Now, on our own, what can we do? It's just like when... I mean, this, this is a microcosm that you and I are about to experience where 10% of God's called out ones here at the end come out of a world just ahead of the northern army destroying this nation after the financial collapse and the army is coming. And they're going to be fleeing ahead of it to get to Zion, asking, how do I get to Zion? And they will have nothing. Now, we have taken some measures over these last years to try to prepare somewhat ahead, to have some food and so on. But, you know, it's a lot bigger than us. We don't have the money or the wherewithal or even enough space at this point to take care of that many people. What if tomorrow morning 7, 8, 10, 12,000 people showed up here? What are you going to do? <laughs> what are you going to do? How do you feed them? How do you take care of them? Now Christ says He's going to change the climate in this area. He's going to become a wall of defense to keep anyone from coming in uh, and hurting. And He's going to provide the storage that other people have set up for His people so that they can be taken care of. But I think we will be front and center as the ones to help them get settled in, to find that food. Uh, he's going to run these people that inhabit this area out of here. The Scriptures are very clear on that. So, we'll have to supply the need. Now, that's just an example and a training for the need that needs to be supplied not to a few thousand, but to a hundred million, uh, 
when Christ comes to rule. That's all that will be left, and every one of them will be in need, unbelievable need. So, why did God put this section in here, and why did Paul spend so much time trying to work on their attitudes and work them around and get them into a ready and willing mind and into a mind and heart that cheerfully gave of themselves to help however they could. He spends a lot of time on it, and lest we get bored with it and think that this, well, it's just between Paul and the churches, it doesn't mean anything. Let's project ahead of where we're going. And understand, this is talking about us, and it's talking about the whole 144,000 in an even bigger episode only a few years from now. So let's pick it up where we left off in verse 8 then. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you. So he says, give cheerfully, take care of the need that is here, and understand, have trust and faith, that whatever you do for someone else, God's grace, His goodwill toward you will abound. You can't outgive God, as Herbert Armstrong used to say. And whatever we give, God will return. He even said just before this, or right after this, that you reap what you sow. And if you sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. Sometimes it's hard for us to say, well, I'll turn loose of this uh, because I know God will take care of me because we have this and that's what we're depending on. But God says, no, give up some of what you have for somebody else and I'll take care of you. Now, that's where faith has to be living faith, where we truly trust God that if I turn loose of this, I don't have to worry about it. He's going to take care of me. And here we are, toward the end, actually, of the third tithe year. And uh, I don't see anybody starving to death, or I haven't had any phone calls or texts of, uh, we actually need food down here, we just don't have enough money to pay for our food. You may have had to cut back some on this or that or the other thing, and maybe just barely scraping by paying the bills, but somehow it's getting done. Because God... I've seen over the years, many, many times, in personal experience as well as stories that have been related to me by many, many people, that things just seem to work out. So that whatever you, if you obey God, you don't starve to death. Uh, Something works out and you're taken care of. And sometimes it's in such a way that you couldn't account it as anything but a miracle that somebody gave you this, or this happened, and, and it made everything work. So he says, His grace will abound toward us, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. So the more you give, he says, the more God will bless you, and you'll be able to abound to every good work that comes along that needs done. Now, why would God... Tell us that he's a generous, loving God who will bless us if we give to others and then we don't believe him. So we hang on and don't help or don't help as much as we could or whatever. Uh, He is not going to show us that he doesn't love us. He's not going to show us that He's not willing to give to us and help us. He's very willing to show how generous and loving and kind He is if we do our part. But it is always contingent on that. It says God loves a cheerful giver. He loves that person. Now somebody's begrudging, and even if they give... They're begrudging. That's not something you really love, is it? I mean, with children sometimes, little kids, they'll show some generosity at times. And maybe they have a 
some kind of a treat, whatever it might be. And they just willingly, lovingly give it to their brother or sister. As parents, we've experienced that. We may have experienced more than, no, it's mine. You get your own. We've probably seen more of that, yeah. But sometimes you see the other side. <laughs> and you know what happens to your heart when you see your kid being loving and generous to his brother or sister? It just melts you. Because you love to see that spirit and attitude of giving and sharing. After fighting it all the time, somebody new comes in. They don't want to share their toys with them. And so you have to tell them. And then they get upset and frustrated and angry because they don't want to share their toys. This is mine. But boy, it's nice when they go the other way, isn't it? So God doesn't like that negative selfish attitude, but he loves a cheerful giver. And that is not something that is a normal, common, human emotion for the most part. Some people are more that way than others. Some are just selfish, clear to the core. Others aren't that selfish. Uh, but then they make up for it by being self-righteous about it. So, either way, as a human being, you're you're not right on your own. And it takes God's Spirit, then, to give us the right attitude and motivation. And then He will bless that. That we may abound to every good work. I think I've recounted that I've, I ran into someone who, after coming into the church for a short while, had tried tithing. And there in Malachi, it talks about how the windows of heaven will open and you'll receive blessings like you've never known before. He says, well, I tried tithing and the windows of heaven didn't open up and I ain't ever going to tithe again. <laughs> well, had God opened the windows of heaven with understanding, with the knowledge of God with a blessing that very, very, very few people on this earth have, and that is a knowledge of who the true God is and what our purpose on this earth is, how could the windows of heaven give you anything more important or more wonderful than that? If you're thinking in purely physical terms, you can say, well, that's, we're, all we're doing here is counting dollars. I gave some dollars. What did I get in return? Didn't Paul even say, you give of your physical and we give you the spiritual? I, I think we already read that in Corinthians here. Which is far, far above that which is physical. There are a lot of people on this earth who would love to know why they're here. They'd love to know what the future really is. And there's no way they can find it, except they come to those very few whom God has revealed that to, for his own purposes. Now, ultimately, uh, we may have physical abundance. In fact, he even promises us physical abundance here at the end, when the rest of the world is going to be going into all kinds of problems. But what did Peter say to the lame man? Silver and gold have I none. I'll give you what I do have. And you know what? When his ankles got strong and he could jump up and down and leap and run, that was a whole lot more important to him than silver and gold. He had been sitting there for nearly 40 years receiving a little silver and a little gold. And it might have kept him eating, but he didn't have the kind of joy he did when he got that healing. People in this world with cancer, with terrible heart diseases, with AIDS, with Ebola, you can name a list here as long as your arm of terrible diseases that people suffer. What would they give for a complete healing? They say you spend all your wealth 
I mean, you spend all your health getting wealth. Then you spend all that wealth to try to get health. Because you realize you worked yourself into illness and sickness, destroyed your health, and now you're miserable. So people spend everything they have going to doctors, trying this operation, that pill, or something else, to get where they can feel good. And spend a lot of money on insurance in hopes that if they get something bad, they can be fixed. And then they watch each other die horribly in great pain. What would they give for somebody to walk up and say, be healed? Oh my, that's worth a whole lot more than money. But God says he'll take care of us and whatever we need. You know, that's one of the... I, I was taught about God's healing from age about nine. And I saw healings in my family. Uh, pretty certain I was healed of polio back in the early 50s. And I've seen that kind of thing. And you know how much people spend on medical, or at least it used to be, about 10%. They spend on health and healing and medicines and doctors of their income. It may be a higher percentage than that now as we've gotten sicker and sicker. I don't know, but that's, that's from 30, 40 years ago when it was about 10%. You know what? God healed us, and we gave 10% to Him, and we felt good. <laughs> Didn't need to go to the doctor. Didn't need to go to the hospital. I've been in a hospital other than to visit people twice in my life. Once to be born, and once to get some arms in a cast. And that's it. Well, we learned from Herbert Armstrong way back in the 50s that we ought not to have white sugar and white flour and to eat better than the average American. And you know what? For the most part, all my siblings, my parents, have been pretty healthy. And I thank God that he gave us that knowledge early on to stay away from junk. If I somehow was able to snitch a piece of candy somewhere and came in where my dad was working and he smelled chocolate on my breath, and believe me, he had a good nose, I got a whooping right there for having eaten a piece of chocolate candy. I wasn't happy at the moment. But you know what? I'm happy now that I didn't eat all that. We didn't drink pop, but very rarely when we could sneak it as kids. It wasn't in the house. None of that junk was in the house. Now, I tried to preach it here, and I ran into all kinds of trouble because people thought I was interfering and trying to lord it over them. No, I was just telling them how to have decent health, how to get better. I didn't go in their houses and open their cupboards and look and see what was there or lord it over anybody that way. I just tried to teach them good health or good childering principles from the Bible. They just, oh, they resented that. Whatever you do to try to teach people God's way, somehow they seem to have resentment of one form or another. And Paul is kind of tiptoeing around the tulips here, in a sense, uh, over and over again, trying to prepare people's attitudes. Uh, and it's difficult, because he said to them, you're yet carnal. Your reactions are carnal. They're human reactions instead of godly reactions. So what he's having to do here is try to tell them and teach them what godly reactions really are. That takes a lot of prayer. It takes a lot of meditation. It takes a lot of introspection of yourself to come to have godly responses. The, the attitudes and things of God coming out your mouth in response to things that are said to you or done to you or whatever. Most of our responses 
or many of our responses, are yet carnal, egocentric, defensive, self-righteous, angry, or whatever that are not godly responses. Those are carnal responses. Those are the kinds of responses your relatives and friends in the world had. Same kind of responses you used to have, but are now working on changing. He says, be not soon angry, and God is slow to anger. How fast can we blow a gasket? Uh, That's a carnal reaction. It is not necessarily a godly reaction. Now, we can have righteous anger. There are some times when immediate anger is needed. Now, knowing the difference and knowing when to do it and when not to do it is where wisdom and self-control comes in. You know, Christ was not an angry person, but when he saw the money changers, and he'd probably seen them before, but that one day, he got out the whip and just ran them off. And I'm sure he was quite angry. He didn't just say, well, now you lovable people are doing the wrong thing, and I would sure appreciate it if you would leave here. No. He turned over their tables and whooped up on them. And they left in fear and panic. And I doubt if they came back anytime soon. So there is a time for anger. And then we have to learn wisdom on when is the time for that. And if it is time, let it go. If it's not time, shut it down. You know? Tough time. But it's hard not to react carnally. So he spends all this time trying to tell them how to react in a godly manner. To be willing to give, to be willing to help, and to do it with a cheerful attitude. And that if we do, we'll be blessed by God. Verse 9, As it is written, He has dispersed abroad, He has given to the poor, His righteousness remains forever. So God is going to take care of those in need. Uh, He has a special affection for the widow and the orphan, does he not? Those who are in need and takes care of them one way or another. And then he turns around and tells us to do the same. In fact, uh, that's a lot of the basis for the third tithe year is to make sure the widow and the orphan are taken care of because they don't have a father, a husband, a man to take care of them and they have needs. Yes, single mothers do raise families, but it is very tough for them to do it. In our nation today, even as wealthy as we have been, it's still difficult to do it all. So God takes special care of those who have that kind of need. Um, Now, he that ministers seed to the sower, both ministers bread for your food, and multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness. So, we all have a certain level at which we will operate, and we're comfortable with. But he says, through God and trust in Him, we need to increase our willingness to help and serve and give over time. You, you don't sit with the talents you have, you increase them. And if you say, well, I'm, I'm doing enough, that's the way the guy with the one talent did. He wrapped it up and buried it so it would still be there. And he says, well, you weren't going to increase it, and you didn't even put it to those that pay interest and at least have some gain on it. You just buried it. Now, what good did that do me? Why did I give it to you in the first place if I was going to get the exact same amount back? What's the point? I could have just kept it and done that. No, you're supposed to increase it. That's what a good steward uh, in that particular case of talents will do. And we're not speaking here physically. We're speaking spiritually. God gives us a certain 
uh, help when we are converted and have His Spirit. And then we're supposed to increase that Spirit, increase the fruit of the Spirit as time goes on. To be more like God, who is loving and giving and patient and kind and gentle and all the fruits of the Spirit. So, uh, verse 11, "...being enriched in everything to all bountifulness or generosity, which causes through us thanksgiving to God." So he says, when we see your generosity and when you are generous... It helps everybody's attitude. It helps yours who give, and it helps those who are working with you to see you in that kind of an attitude and willingness, because what's the point for us? What's the ultimate overall point for you and me? That is that we are to live together in love, doing whatever we can to help one another in this spiritual life that God has afforded us. We are to become as close-knit as we can in love. We are not to be estranged against one another, to have attitudes against one another. We are to get rid of those and come to have the love of God. Now, He loves every human being on this earth. And he has their best interests in mind. Some he's not working with much right now, or if at all, they're waiting for the great white throne judgment. Some of the weak in base he has picked out to be a light to the world. That's you and me. And having been weak in base, except for you, of course, who is the noble uh, one, but the rest of us are weak in base, and he has called us to become mighty and noble and wise. We're not to stay the way we were called. We are to come to be loving as God is loving. Kind, generous, helpful, forgiving, just loving. Love is the greatest thing of all. So everything Paul is saying here is pointed toward that. That we all be willing to serve and help one another, even in different places, different cities, as he was ministering to. That they help one another. And you had different races of people, different languages. And he was asking them all to love each other. Now that's a tall order. It's not easy. You're going to see people coming here of different languages, all different colors of skin, all different biases, hopefully all converted and having the Spirit of God because they're the ones that He stirred to come. But it will be an adjustment for everybody. And if you have the love of God, then you're going to love every color, you're going to love every language, you're going to love them, whoever they are, and wherever they came from. Because you are primed ahead of time to love. Will they have different personalities? Will some of them be the kind that you would just enjoy being around because of common values or common interests? Yeah. Will there be some that you have a certain amount of personality conflict or abrasion toward? Yep. There'll be that too. But we have to overcome that. We don't just leave things that way. We come to love all of them. Whether or not there's somebody we want to spend a lot of time with or not, we don't, God doesn't tell us that. Uh, Christ spent more time with some of the disciples than he did others. Or maybe not so much time, <clears throat> but he had a different level of affection for, let's say. Uh, John was obviously the one closest to him, who had the attitude, the personality that Christ responded to more than the rest. And he was the one that would lean on, if Christ was leaning back on a tree, John would come sit down beside him and lean back on his chest. <clears throat> 
because they had that kind of special relationship. Now, Christ did not put John in charge of the church because Peter and James had more of the characteristics needed to lead the church and Paul did for the Gentiles. But as far as a personality, uh, John was kinder, gentler, more loving, I am pretty sure, than the rest of them. Because when you read John's writing, it's different than it is for the rest of them. He speaks, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and even in the Gospel of John, more about emotion and love and how the commandments of God are expressed as love far more than any of the others do. So there was something about the way John's personality and mind worked that caused him to get along with Christ in a closer relationship than any of the others. So it's not wrong to have a closer relationship with some than others, but we're to love everybody and do whatever we can to help everybody and to get along as best we can under whatever circumstances we find ourselves. And work at it. Not just say, okay, too bad for you. See ya. Uh, not the right attitude. The right attitude is do everything we can, bend over backward to try to show love to everybody, even though it comes more naturally with some than with others, perhaps. It is true that birds of a feather flock together. And if these people like certain things, they'll tend to equate to each other better. If another group has other interests, uh, you know, musicians tend to get with musicians. And uh, hunters tend to get with hunters and fishermen. And, and uh, people that like to read like to get together with each other and talk books. You know, whatever the subject is or whatever the interests are, people who have the same ones tend to get together more because of common interests. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, but don't exclude everybody else because our love is to be universal to everyone. And to work at it where it's, it's, where it's easy, it's easy. You don't have to work at that. You don't have to overcome. It's easy. But where it's difficult is where you have to work at it and overcome. That's where it's difficult, is getting along with the ones that you don't have an affinity for, let's say, as much. So God says, work at that, and uh, be as loving as you can be under the circumstances, and make it work, so that we might see the fruits of righteousness. Verse 11, being enriched in everything to bountifulness or generosity, I read that, uh, which brings thanksgiving to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the want of the saints, but, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings to God. So you're being generous with the physical, but what about those people who receive that? They're going to be thanking God that there were people who helped them. I mean, they're eating <laughs> they weren't eating, or they weren't eating much, and they're going to be thankful to God to, toward anyone who helps their need. And you also will, when you give, be blessed in attitude and give thanks to God that you're able to help. So, doing it God's way is good for everybody. Verse 13, while by the experiment of this ministration, they glorify God for your pro professed subjection to the gospel of Christ. They'll be thankful that God called you and that you're there with an attitude of God to help them out. And for your liberal distribution to them and to all men. So he says, you're going to benefit just from the standpoint that these people are going to be thankful to God for you. Wouldn't it be a good feeling when you woke up in the morning 
to know that somewhere around you or someone who knew you was giving thanks to God for you. Wouldn't that be a nice feeling? So-and-so is over there on their knees this morning thanking God for me. That would be a kind of a nice feeling. You know, so much and so often in human circumstances, somebody's over there praying to God to cause you to repent. <laughs> praying to God to cause you to have a better attitude. Uh, or praying that God remove you from the face of the earth. Or You know, there are all kinds of of things like that. How did David sometimes pray for his enemies? Sometimes he prayed that God blot them out off the face of the earth. Now, if his enemies knew what he was praying, that would not have been really encouraging to them. You know what I mean? But had David been praying, which he did sometimes, that God would bless his enemies, and they heard that, hey, that's pretty good. Oh, that's acceptable to me. I'm glad David's praying that God bless me. So he's just saying here that if we help each other and are generous and loving to each other, then there are going to be people that are thanking God for us. that's That's a kind of a nice place to be. Let's see, verse 4. And by their prayer for you, which long after you, for the exceeding grace of God in you. So they're going to love you, and they're going to pray toward God in thankfulness uh, for you, and the exceeding grace of God be given to you. It's it's just kind of nice when people pray that good things come to you. Thanks be to God for His unspeakable gift. How simply by doing something for someone else, we ourselves are emotionally and spiritually blessed. You know, that's what all these charitable institutions out here in the world do. They understand this principle, at least on a physical level. Because what do they do? They'll put pictures on the TV of some kid, let's say in Africa, who's just skin and bones and got flies on his face and barely clothed, and they will ask you to sponsor that child by sending money to the Red Cross or the United Way or whichever way it is for that child. Because they're... They know that people do have, to one degree or another, an emotion of wanting to help that which is in dire need. And that they will feel good if they're able to help that orphan. And so they pull on your emotions to get you to give to help that child. Now, they don't tell you, even in the fine print, that 90% of what you do give goes to paying their salaries and uh, their overhead and their offices, and very, very little of it ever gets to an orphan, much less that one they showed you a picture of. That's the truth of the matter. But the point is, they use your emotions against you to get you to give to them with the real purpose being to help themselves, and they do help themselves. And even if you send aid, and they say, all right, we're going to drop this over in this country to help the starving people, you know what happens in most cases? The ones in charge, the government, the ones with the guns, take it all, and the poor people get very, very little of it. That's just the real world. But here we're talking about true emotions from God of giving and serving and loving as training for what we are to be as the bride of Christ to fulfill Proverbs 31.
that she takes care of her own and she takes care of others. She is there to help whatever there is a need. And much, much more that's in that particular passage, but overall that's the point. It's an unspeakable gift of God, of the glory and the grace and the thanksgiving that comes when His people are generous and loving in their time, their effort, their prayers, their money. It's not all about money. It's about other things that we can do for one another. Well, let's get on into chapter 10 a little early, but uh, so we got some time left. Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent am bold toward you. Now, he's referring there to some problems that he had as a human being. Uh, he apparently had uh, some kind of speech impediment where he either did not speak very clearly or... Uh, some difficulty there in communicating that made him look weak uh, in presence of the flesh. <coughs> There's also a passage <coughs> which indicates that he had a, a real vision problem. And whatever that problem was, was not just cataracts, but it, it, uh, it affected his appearance. So he was not good to look at, and he was not good to hear. So when he was among them, he looked weak. And yet, he was bold in his writing. So when he was away from them, he was a powerful, bold man. But when he was there, they looked down upon him for his physical difficulties. It wasn't his brain that was bad. It was his eyes and his mouth, and whatever difficulties he had. He doesn't spit it out completely, but he certainly makes some allusions to it. Uh, so, base among you, but I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. So he says... When I do come, I don't want to have to be as bold as I am being in these letters. Uh, but there are some there who say that he and Titus and uh, Timothy and the ministry that he was working with were walking according to the flesh. That they didn't have the Spirit of God, they didn't have the fruit of the Spirit of God, and that they were just walking fleshly. That they were after everything that they had. Here he's talking about them giving of what they do have, not for him and for Titus and Timothy, but for people who were without food. But there were there there were those in the congregations, wherever he went, who looked down upon him and down upon the rest of the ministry as if they were there just for themselves. That is fairly common, and it got it's, at some point, it got pretty common in Worldwide Church of God. Now, I'm thankful. Now, Paul talks about himself there. But I'll say this. I'm thankful that I was out of the ministry for 12 years and was out making my own living and making a much, much better one than I've ever made in the ministry of the church. I made far, far more, many times more money in that 12 years than all the years I've worked in the ministry combined. By far. And more than I've made since I've been here. I think that, I don't think there's over more, I don't think I've got more than two million saved up uh, from being here. Some say three, but I, I, I don't think it's anything above two. Sometimes it just amazes me that people can't think and can't use a pencil. You know what I mean? What do we got? Let's average it, about 25 households here, each giving 100 a month for their lease. 
or did have. And there was a mortgage of over 2000 a month. So out of 2500 2000 and more went to the mortgage. Well, that left 500 a month to take care of the electricity on all the wells, to do any road maintenance that needed it, and to replace pumps or bladders or parts on the wells, and many other things that come up. And 500 a month didn't even come near covering that. I had to reach into the tithes to the church to just take care of people here because the $100 was not enough to cover it. So how are you going to get $2 million out of that? Now you take people who are most of them on Social Security uh, or working for minimum wage or barely above, and some who are unemployed, and some who are sick and need help, and you're going to make millions off of that? I... You can pencil that out in about ten minutes and see that there's nothing there to do that with. But people go, not by what a pen and pencil and the conditions would tell them, but they go by emotion. He must be getting rich off of us. No. I made a lot more money when I wasn't here than I have since I've been here, by far. I told somebody that one time, and he said... You never worked for yourself. You didn't go to Alaska and be out of the ministry for 12 years. Well, yeah, I did. How did he know? How would he know that I didn't do that? I did. I got witnesses that I did. But people just react to what they want to believe. And Paul had the same problem here. He says there's some there that think that we're all just walking after the flesh for our benefit of the flesh. Just to get your money is what the ministry is all about. And you know, out here in a world of materialism, everybody wants money. In this nation, most everybody, that's what they're all about is money. So they think that everybody is like them. And these people thought Paul was that way. But he wasn't. But convincing them otherwise? Hey, that was a tall order. Yep, they're convinced that we're walking according to the flesh. Things haven't changed much over the years, have they? There's nothing new under the sun. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. It isn't the things of the flesh that we're after, or that we're warring to get. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. The bastions of human endeavor need to be pulled down. And that's what this end-time work is going to be all about, is convincing the world that they ought to serve God and give up their pursuit of materiality, what's the beast and the false prophet going to use on them? Materiality. Their stomachs. They're going to implode the system financially that we have today on purpose and replace it with a different kind of monetary uh, use that requires a chip in your forehead or your hand in order for you to buy and sell. That's being implemented in some places right now. Wisconsin's one place I think of immediately. And your cards, your credit cards, you know, used to you have to run it through and all this. And now you just insert it for a little bit. And they've got it now to where you don't even have to do that. All you have to do is just wave it over the machine and it pays. And pretty soon, the card will disappear, and all you have to do is wave your hand to pay. And nobody can stand there and get your number because it's implanted in your hand. So they're going to make it safer and work better and smoother, and they're going to say, you can't buy anything without it. And everybody's going to say, okay, 
I want to buy and sell, and I need to eat. So the whole world is going to accept this new monetary system that is about to be implemented. And God tells us if we take it, it's the mark of the beast. And then anybody of God's people who takes it will more than likely at least die in the tribulation of not going to the lake of fire for worshiping Satan and the beast. So you ready to get implanted? I don't think so. Are we going to trust God to take care of us, obey Him, or will we go the way of the world so that we can eat, we think? He's promised us food. He's promised to take care of us. Who are you going to believe? False prophet and the beast or God? And he says it will be so powerful that if it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived. This is going to be a powerful thing that's coming. Far more powerful than Paul was dealing with here. But God's church is going to be there by His power to take down the strongholds of the world. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So he's saying this is our ultimate goal, is to bring every one of our human thoughts into the spiritual realm so that we're thinking as Christ would think. Now, he thought of physical things when he was here on the earth. He had to eat, he had to find a place to sleep, he had to live as a physical human being. So those needs were there to be taken care of. And he often sent the disciples to or Judas to go buy whatever they might need or to take care of those physical things. But he did not think carnal, deceitful, wretched human thoughts. He did not let those go through his mind. And Paul is saying here, we're to bring down the strongholds of our human existence and replace them with the thoughts of God, bringing every thought into captivity. That is beyond our comprehension, I understand. We work at it some, and we try to think the way God would think, And the only way you're going to know how God thinks is to read this book. This one gives you the thoughts of God. And the more you read and think about it, the more likely you are to come to think as He thinks. Now, here sit people in this room. Do you know how they think? Not unless you know them pretty well, you don't. And it takes a lot of time with somebody to know just how their mind works. Now, we think we know, because we assume, and we impute motives, and we say, well, I know what so-and-so's thinking, (coughs) because I'm so smart. And I know how they think. Well, you may not, because you don't know. And only God can discern the heart and mind. You can't. So you can impute all the motives you want, but you want, but you won't be right a lot of the time. Sometimes you might. Bring every thought to the obedience of Christ. He says in Philippians two five, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Emmanuel. So we are to we are to clone him, to copy him, to be just like him to think exactly like he thought and bring every thought into the thought that he would have. That's a daunting goal, but it is the purpose he gives us, is to be just like him. If we are to be just like him, then we can marry him. But does he want want a wife that is always contrary? 
that is always fighting him, that is always wanting to go a different direction than he is going? Is that the kind of wife he'd want? No, I don't think so. He wants us to be loving and kind and gentle and thoughtful and serving, both him and all his children, and fulfilling Proverbs 31 throughout eternity. That's what he wants us to be. Now, we're not going to get there until our change come, for sure. But we sure need to be working that direction. He doesn't say to everyone who has achieved perfection, will I grant to sit with me in my throne. To him that has overcome, will I do that. So, he doesn't expect us to have reached absolute perfection so that every thought is there. But he expects us to have grown toward that and overcome our nature and our carnal thinking to begin to think in the spirit instead of the flesh and to walk in the spirit instead of the flesh. That's our goal and our purpose, to bring every thought into the obedience of Christ. I think that's a good thought to stop on right there uh, into verse 5 because that is a goal and a purpose to have the love of God, to have the faith, the trust, the hope, the patience, the long-suffering, all those things that are the fruit of the Spirit, we are to come to have fully, completely, and totally, and our carnal reactions are to be put aside. Just as he's recommending that these people quit thinking materially and realize that the ministry was there to help them, not just to take what they had. And he'll go on about that some more here as we continue. But let's stop there for today.